that. So uh, you're Clarissa Prieto. And this is Rebecca Mencia. Um, and, and this is the art broadcast. The art broadcast. <clears throat> the broadcast about broads who make art. Female identifying artists. Underrated artists. Our favorite artists. Mm-hmm. The world's favorite artists. <laughs> the ar- <laughs> artists the world should know more about. The women in art. And so... <clears throat> This episode is on my favorite artist. Is she your favorite for real? Of She's all time? my favorite conceptual artist, honestly, because I'm not a fan of conceptual art. I know you're not a fan of conceptual art either. I think it depends. I think sometimes it can be. Yeah, well, if his name is Jeff or Coons, then. Or I, Damien or Hearst, <laughs> then fuck him. <laughs> then but. I hate it. But I don't know. I, I never relate to conceptual art, but she she's so organic and she's so natural about it. Oh, wait, we, didn't, we don't even know. It doesn't it. Just, who we are we talking about? A ghost. Uh, Sophie Cal. Sophie Cal. She's Calais. Or Calais. We never. Disclaimer we're not French. She's a French artist, so we don't know how to pronounce this. Most shit. of these things. I mean, I don't know how to pronounce this. Anything. And also, yeah, did we translate all of them? <laughs> <laughs> I like, translated nothing. Some of them, yeah. So we're just gonna butcher the French and who? Yeah. Sophie Cal. <clears throat> She's a French artist. Should we call her an artist? Would she, she call? I think herself? now she calls herself an now artist. She like, she began referring to herself as someone who just played games, which I think is yeah so interesting. But she really does not fall into just one or just one every category. category of everything you could ever yeah. think of. So she's a conceptual artist, an installation artist, a, a photographer, photographer, a writer too. Yeah. Um, what else do we got? A director. We have an amateur detective. AKA. I mean, she is very, it's very she's investigative. She's a stalker. <laughs> she's, and, yeah. she, and she's very open about her voyeurism. Is it voyeur? Yeah, voyeur. Yeah. She's very open about her voyeurism and her quote unquote detective work. If, right. If if we if we will. And I think the the biggest takeaway, like what is most distinct, is her relationship between photographs and a narrative of her own writing. Right. But she was born in Paris. In... Oh, right. She was born in the 50s in um, 1953 mm-hmm. in Paris, France. To a doctor, an oncologist, and a book critic, her mom's book critic, and right. an attache, um, which is like a person on the staff of an ambassador, basically. Which is sounds very fancy. It's not very fancy. Yeah. Monique Findler. <coughs> but her Findler. parents were avid uh, collectors. Mm-hmm. They were actually pretty prominent in the collector world. So she, she already had some exposure to creative elements. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why a lot of her work has a lot to do with narrative. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure she was reading a lot growing up and around um, literary types and artists. Right. Um, And one of the artists that her dad collected from, Jean Boyard, um, is (laughs) she says he helped her fake her diploma. Uh, Because she was traveling and he would fake papers for her, as she describes it. Um, And she didn't want to 
to study in traditional school. She wanted to travel, so she did that. Right, like, this is literally, like, she just happened to fall in the category of art because she just literally wanted to stalk these people. (laughs) She wanted to, she wanted to experience, understand her, the world a little better. She was looking for a specific kind of connection, Um, but it's just so insane, like, how does someone become that? Right, and I, that's, one of the things that like describes her is that people are annoyed with her because yeah. we were talking about this earlier is that she all of her work is really personal and intimate or like someone else yeah. it's personal to someone else but right. it's also really cold and mm-hmm. detached right. like she's right. trying to investigate what makes up our world and our relationships mm-hmm. her first work we're going to talk about is sweet venine Venetian, Venetian, sweet Venetian. Yeah, basically. Um, like sweet, as in like hotel suite, like a room. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is kind of like a great way to start off because it's investigative. Um, it's she's stealing things. Like she does not always ask for permission, and she yeah. doesn't really. She is very controversial, and she mm-hmm. pisses so a lot of people off, which I find fun and interesting and pretty badass. Uh, when she first moved to Paris, after she started traveling, she says that she didn't know anyone. She had like separated completely from her old life, and she wanted to get back into it and kind of understand what people were doing in Paris. So she started following strangers and taking photographs of them and recording them. And she had found this guy earlier in the day and she took a photograph of him and then later she saw him again at a party um, and they talked briefly and he said he was going to Venice immediately and she decided to follow him and then for two weeks she followed him around Venice mm-hmm. having no- knowing I think very little about the city itself and took photographs of him and timestamped her entries into her diary and just surveilled this Henri B, as she refers to him. Um, Oh, that's another thing. I love that she... um, I've, like... This is a commonality in all her works. Like, whenever she has to name somebody, she either uses their initials or mm-hmm. she abbreviates it in some way. Later, she'll refer to somebody yeah. as X. Yeah, exactly. Like and yeah. I love that. Because she's being very personal, but also very distant. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's still trying to keep it, like, intimate. Like, she's still trying to be private in yeah. a way, which is so strange because she's exposing so much. Because I think a lot of it, even though it is personal, like, yeah. it's not about the person it's yeah. about this this idea the, the of intimacy and a yeah. person and yeah. identity and self so like looking at these photos <laughs> there you can tell that he did not know no, that he, she was following she's her literally following she him. was following him and she's not even too far behind him like she's just like literally there's one where he him. like has put his hand up to like but that's the I don't oh, know. yeah yes. that photograph yes it's just he's like get away from me yeah it's funny and it's so strange which I think is what even though she's a conceptual artist like that's what I like about it is that it feels genuine yeah exactly Mm -hmm. like it's not creepy even though it is kind of it's pretty creepy yeah it is Um, so this happens in 1979 79 well made the same year that Sweet Venny yeah, right. 10 is the sleepers. Um, 
which is a project where she invited strangers and some friends into her home to spend eight hours in her bed. Um, and in the process, they would meet each other in passing. Um, and she documented their stay with notes and photographs. Of course, one of the people who stayed in her bed was the wife of an art curator. And so that's kind of how she got her start in the art world mm-hmm. um, and how these photographs were eventually displayed. Made that same year, she worked in a CD strip club in Paris um, and made a piece consisting of photographs of herself stripping, juxtaposed with cards sent to her parents as good congratulations for her birth. This is a story from her book, True Stories, that talks about her time um, as a stripper. It's called The Striptease. Okay, The Striptease. I was six. I lived on a street named Rosa Bonaire with my grandparents. A daily ritual obliged me every evening to undress completely in the elevator on my way up to the sixth floor, where I arrived without a stitch on. Then I would dash down the corridor at lightning speed, and as soon as I reached the apartment, I would jump into bed. Twenty years later, I found myself repeating the same ceremony every night in public, on the stage of one of the strip joints that line the boulevard in Big Lial, wearing a blonde wig in case my grandparents, who lived in the neighborhood, should happen to pass by. <laughs> She's just ballsy. She's like there's super no. Ballsy. I I don't like using that word because like. Men balls, balls. Yeah. but she's like she's fucking brave. Yeah, she's she was doing some crazy. She's putting herself I out mean, there. Looking at these photos of the sleepers, are we still on the sleepers? Yeah, we're do- yeah, nineteen seventy nine. It's so it's so strange watching these people sleep, and I just feel like these <laughs> photographs make some of them make me feel uncomfortable, and I'm just like, I mean, it's a very vulnerable, yeah, intimate it's thing. So intimate, but this is what she wanted to see. To one, let strangers in your bed and then those strangers let you take photographs of them it's very it's a very weird relationship yeah and she just and fleeting and she just literally walked outside and like asked people come (laughs) in my bed you know like come sleep and take a nap you know she seems I mean these people are very charming and they're oh yeah like everything she's like she's got the accent and she like talks very slowly so just a just an FYI. I, but beautiful she's, in a weird way. You know, she's like a sexy woman. Like she, she has like has, a big nose, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. Same which here, I love too. She almost got plastic surgery on that nose too. Yeah, like wide set eyes yeah. and like a small mouth yeah, and yeah. yeah, just like a like an interesting looking mm-hmm. person. But she's beautiful mm-hmm. in, in like in every way possible. Um, so yeah, I'm sure like her charming ass was like luring like mad people into mm-hmm. her bed. Like I would go in her bed mm-hmm. any day. Um, but these people are naked in the photos. Like they are. Like, yeah. I mean, this is Paris. Granted. <laughs> this is Paris France. in the yeah the late nineteen seventies, yeah, early eighties. Like, everybody's fucking. How many drugs were these people life. on? I know, like, look at this guy. But it's also a so place. this yeah, it's like a photograph of a guy laying towards the end of the bed, and you can just see his bare ass. But it's like beautifully. It's a, a, an amazing like a, photo. Right. It's just like so tasteful because it's like, yeah, you can see his ass crack and everything. <laughs> and all the hair on his legs. Right. And, like, well, you know. the- yeah, so then the next, in the next few years, she makes the hotel. 1981. Um, 1981. So another voyeuristic, surveillance heavy piece. Yes. Um, 
<laughs> she she was working as a she actively chamber. she yeah this was a plan this she, was another sort of she yeah, set parameters this was like for herself super premeditated and she would go in and just kind of yeah like yeah. rifle through their shit and take photographs yeah. and sort of I mean like it's just almost like not okay you know? <laughs> right yeah a lot of it is these people would be pissed yeah, and these photos are like. She's right. hands on hands and judging all over their things. What the one that I sort of focused on was room forty seven, right. um, which was a family of four, two parents, two children, revealed by four pairs of slippers, is what she says. Um, and she said she didn't go through their suitcase, suitcase claiming that she was already bored, mm-hmm. um, and that she copied down the contents of a postcard that revealed the family was having problems. So she is judging their lifestyle, yeah. like going yeah. through their shit making determinations about how they're living. Yeah. And, but I think, yeah, it's also really poignant because it's she's taking pictures of a room that is empty, essentially. She's taking pictures of the absence of people. Yeah, it's very personal, but not to her. Mm-hmm. Like, this is her distancing herself from the subject matter and writing about it's, it in a cold way. It's almost very selfish, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1983, she creates the address book. So she does this piece. The address book she finds on the street of Paris. And, of course, in true Sophie fashion, <laughs> she makes copies of these um, entries in said address book and mails it back to the owner. But she doesn't tell him. No, she doesn't let him know that he that she's like, oh, hey, here's your address book. Also, I photocopied <laughs> all the contents. So here's your copy of your address book. Right. Um, again, which is very like intrusive like very um like just says a lot about what she's looking for she's stealing things yeah. she's stealing people's experiences yeah and yeah. trying to understand them and we're calling it art i what it is, it is but though. it's very poignant yeah. and and so um so she takes her copy of this address book and she starts content contacting the people the names that are written inside. <laughs> um, and she's literally asking these people to describe the owner of said address book. Right. Um, and then going around and taking pictures of where, like, the things that he would do. Right, exactly. Which is very creepy. Like, trying to construct this idea of a person from the people that you know and the things that they say that you like to do or the appointments of things that you have Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is like what does that say about you yeah it's just so strange i mean she's trying to reach like because the whole point of her doing this entire thing was that she wanted to get to know the person without knowing the person yeah like she wanted to figure out for herself who this person was Okay, so this guy, Pierre D. The owner he, of the address. The owner of the address book. The French publication in the newspaper was Liberation, or whatever, however you say it, mm-hmm. if you're French and not Spanish. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so he was pissed. He was yeah. not happy, he and he threatened like, to sue her yeah. and the newspaper, and then he found someone had a nude photograph of her, but, like, she already did the whole strip club thing. Mm-hmm. She's not shy about it. I don't think this bothered her at all, but he... Right. Had this nude ph- photograph and like m- made the French newspaper Liberation mm. publish it. So that was like his 
act of vengeance, which just makes him seem petty and small. Because she didn't, I can't imagine that she really cared. No, no, it didn't, it probably didn't do shit for her. Right, but Um, he, yeah, it was his retaliation for the intrusion. So he was suing her for invasion of privacy, which is so legit. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're kind of gaslighting this guy. I mean, I'd be like, that's weird. You know, I'd be like, <laughs> cool. Like, if someone found your phone me. on the side on the sidewalk and oh, then yeah, called all your me. friends and family and like asked questions about, I don't know me. that I care. If she was gorgeous, then like if she looked like, <laughs> I mean, if it makes okay. So this is like a common thing in her work: these pursuits of love and these relationships with men. And this happens many times where she like invades their privacy and talks about their intimate personal lives without their permission and some of them take it really well and some of them don't and mm-hmm. he's one of them who did not right. take it well um but whatever so the next one we're going to talk about is like one of my favorites yeah um the blind where she would interview people who were 1986 1986 i'm sorry where she would interview people who were born blind who have never seen and ask them to define beauty and from their response, she created a photographic interpretation um, and then displayed that, that with the portrait of the interviewee as well as, like, a small little transcript of what they said. Te- so text and photographed is mm-hmm. very... Cal. It's, like, a, a lot yeah. about what she did. And so... And just the fact that she wanted to convey a message and this was like the route that she went this one's 14 right oh yeah so this one i love this one so much too because it's It's like because they're discussing the sculpture too yeah and it's a young girl so blind number 14 um which is at the met um is an adolescent girl describes a Rodin sculpture that she's touched. Mm -hmm. So she says, the girl says, in the Rodin Museum, there is a naked woman with very erotic breasts and a terrific ass. She is sweet. She is beautiful. This is like so, like an adolescent girl says this. Like like just from touching a sculpture. And so Kyle does a portrait of the girl, the text, and then a front and back view of the the statue. Yeah, and it's like, it's almost to the T of the way she describes it. Um, Very erotic breasts. Very erotic breasts. Objectifying the sculpture. I know, but it's like... (laughs) This bronze by Rodin. But it's also, I like it because it's a a man coming, representing a female, and then a young woman coming to this sculpture, and like an adolescent woman coming into her sexuality... Touching this sculpture and feeling it visual, you know, representing yeah. it visually, it's very interesting. It to almost me. comes like full circle. It does, yeah. And I think, yeah, and then a female artist showing that work, I it's incredible. Mm. I love it so much, and it's just fun. Um, and then we come to 1990. 1990, and this one's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I like this one. Right. I mean, don't stalk us, but this podcast is recorded just outside of Boston. Right, and I'm a Bostonian born bred, and yeah. our Rebbe here is... I don't know what I am. You're New England. No, well, yeah, I grew up in Arizona, in But she was born in New Jersey. <laughs> this just, is my whole life story. We have a Jersey girl. I was born here. in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and oh, to... Oh, boy. I'm the daughter of a, of a white trash and an immigrant. <laughs> don't say that. You better edit that out. What? My mom would tell you the same thing. She's from Jersey, from like the 
the slums of New Jersey. I don't know. <laughs> the slums of New Jersey. How funny. Uh, but anyway, so we, we right. this is outside Boston. So uh, this takes place at the Gardner Museum. So a little backstory. little backstory. This is actually a personal connection for us. <laughs> this, um, don't give away too much. I know, right? Okay. You can. This isn't our identity. You don't know us. Um, Rebby and I, this is how we met. This is why the gardener means a lot one, to us. This one means a lot to us. Just to keep it clean. Like, <laughs> jumping around. So Isabel Stewart Gardner made this beautiful museum that she lived in for, lived in and died in well, for a small part home. of the, Yeah. And, and so the long story short is that um, in 1990, 1990, right? It was 1990, yeah. Um, there was a, a pretty famous heist that happened at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. The biggest yeah. personal property heist in American yeah. history. Um, I mean, over 15 pieces were stolen, right? What was what's the exact I think it's number? 13. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about what happened that well, night. Well, we should say, okay, so the Gardner Museum... don't come after us. It's we have a, no, no, we know nothing. We uh, have no, no. <laughs> as this, it is an ongoing Hashtag unqualified. <laughs> it's an ongoing investigation that we know nothing about. Okay, so but so Gardner had a built this whole museum and had a really impressive collection that included a Vermeer. Part of Gardner's will is that nothing can be changed. Nothing can be moved in the home. Yeah. yeah. So she made this four floors of this museum um, and she wanted it to be exactly the same forever. Should anything change, everything will be sold at auction and all of the profits will go to Harvard. So it's like a very serious thing. So they can't put new works in these spots. So they're empty frames. So the way she had the home when she was living in it, which was what, what, 19... She died in 1921. So the way it was when she died is the way it is today. Right. With Um, the few exceptions. Which of, with a few restoration that had to with that went yeah. through a whole board of exactly. decisions and so this right. is a, it's basically a time capsule of the gilded age which we know nothing about we're not qualified not qualified so um income sophie cow the paintings were stolen and i guess what she said is that someone put in a newspaper that it was her because she spent so much time as a gardener while she was doing work for the ICA that's fine and spent so much time in the dutch room where mm-hmm. the Vermeer and a bunch of the Rembrandts were from that it was her who stole them which I honestly would not put it past her but I don't think it was her but anyway I mean she would probably steal a fucking painting to like make a piece of a new piece of art but um put it past her she (laughs) so she came back and then she asked people who had experience with the paintings and the objects that were stolen like curators and security guards and like museum staff to describe them for her and then in the place of the paintings she put these descriptions and then she so she did two iterations of this one in 1990 and then one in 2012 mm-hmm. um and i love this project it's i mean it's so fucking cool because right. she's describing something that's not there like is a perfect representation of what she does and again it's her searching for the answers but like uh, like at such a distance so this is like Linda Nochlin did an article about Sophie Kyle and she kind of delves really deep into this one and she talks about ekphrasis, which is like how you describe a visual thing, like describing something. This is what we're doing. So we know that it's really difficult to, to describe something that's visual. Um, it's com- two completely different things. So she did this several times, but I think 
with other paintings that were on loan, which is not doesn't have as high impact because it's not something that's missing. It's not like an emotional, visceral reaction that you have to right. the loss of so something. So she starts like, you know, observing paintings from all around the world that are just not in it not in its usual spot. Like it's not it's just missing. Not yeah, missing, it's been on like, it's on it's, loan to another yeah, museum or right. gallery. But um so for this one she this is something that's lost and has not been found. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite projects. Also, even if we didn't work at the gardener, that the whole heist thing is just right. so intrigued. Plus, yeah, it goes into whole. She has a very detective element to what she does. Yeah, so like, yeah. So I'm sure I can see why it would interest her. Why it would be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the next one we're going to talk about, 1992, is one that I really find interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called either Double Blind or No Sex Last Night. So. Call collaborated with Greg Shepard, who she was dating. Yeah, they say she says it was a boyfriend at the time. At the time, yeah, because she. So the way that they met is kind of strange. They met in a bar in New York in 1989, and she needed a place to stay for a couple nights. So he gave her his keys and left her alone in his place, and then came back. She gave him her, her keys and left, and then. She called him, like, after she was back in France, and they had, like, several phone conversations, and then they made an appointment to meet in the Paris airport in the in January of 1990, and he never showed up. And she tried calling him, and he didn't answer. And then almost an, exactly a year later, he called her from the Paris airport and said, I'm a year late. Do you still want to meet? And they did, and they started dating, and then... He was living in New York, and she was living in Paris, and then she had made plans to come to New York. They were living together for, I guess, a couple weeks, and she says in this, it's like sort of a documentary, sort of a video piece. Mm -hmm. They basically go from New York, on a road trip, go from New York City to San Francisco, where she had a teaching job lined up. They had made these plans over the phone. He said that he was going to get his Cadillac fixed and that he would buy both video cameras and then they and then she arrives and nothing is ready. And she says that she knew then that he didn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Even though they were sort of dating, they were living in different places, but she said that they weren't talking at all for this whole time and she says that she wanted to take this trip because she wanted to be with him and he wanted to make movies. That was like his goal. He wanted to right. be a director. So she had this whole she devised this whole plan to basically get this guy to love her. Which I think is like I've been there, man. I'm like right. I've been like Tell I've been really desperate feel. for love before. Yeah. Whatever. Despite his lack of planning, she decides that they're gonna go anyway. So they both took video cameras from the fucking 90s, so they're like tiny little handheld video cameras um, to document this trip. She made all the arrangements. She had recently lost a friend back in Paris. How long is this film? It's like an hour and a half. Oh, interesting. It's like an actual film. You can watch it. I watched it on YouTube. Is it good? It's good. Yeah, I really liked it. I was, at first I was like, okay, I'll watch 10 minutes Mm -hmm. and see, but then I ended up watching the the whole whole thing. thing. Yeah. It's like an actual movie. Yeah. It's, 
And it's also just, it feels very real and personal. Interesting. And so they, so the way that it's set out is that they each have their video cameras and then they would talk to them too. So like sometimes it's, it's stills almost like they've paused the video and then they're talking over them. Are they having sex? So that's part of it. Like why it's called no sex last night. So every night, every morning she takes a still of the bed from her video camera and she says no sex last night or just no over top of it. So she documents their whole trip there from both of their... So he didn't want to have sex with her? No. And he says that. So they're each using this video camera as a diary. Like he, she says he whispers into it all the time and she's talking to hers. So the narration that you hear over the video is them. They made it while they were on this trip together and he didn't take care of the Cadillac. So it's constantly broken, like breaking down and they have to go and get it fixed for like $700, $300 in the nineties. So it's like, she's spending a lot of money. He didn't have a job. They are sort of in a relationship. It doesn't, she doesn't make it perfectly clear like what their what his expectations from a relationship are but she has a desire for him to want her very clearly and in his narration he never says this to her but in his narration he says things like I wish the desire was there I don't want her things like that and then he's constantly like calling another woman and writing letters to this mysterious H person and the whole time before they left on this trip they're the sort of end game what Kyle wanted was for them to get married in Las Vegas Mm -hmm. and they had decided this before they went on the trip but neither one of them wanted to bring it up and then so they're like getting closer to Las Vegas and they're each, each like narrating talking Wait, are about you it spoiler alerting i'm spoiler spoiler alert <laughs> like you're like an hour deep into I'm in it a, yeah i mean yeah wait maybe they won't want you to tell the ending well okay if you don't want to hear the ending then skip like 30 seconds okay go. ahead so they get married right 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 they do get married so yeah but he <laughs> so they're both pretty relatable because she's like desperately trying to get this guy's attention and he doesn't really want anything to do with her but isn't being honest with her or himself. So why does he marry her? So for this like video project. So there's a really awkward part where they're like because a lot of it is like pictures of like the scenery driving by and like the dash and what you would see if you were in the car with them because mm-hmm. it's from their perspective. So there's this one the scene when they get to Vegas and she's like well I want to stay in the hotel where we're going to get married and he's like well I don't know I don't know I'll have another answer for you in the morning and then she says that in the morning the first thing he says to her is that I want to do this like I want to get married so they do a pull up wedding in the Cadillac mm-hmm. they like drive a drive through wedding at the little white chapel and they get married and then that's the first night on the trip that they... Yeah, but they aren't married anymore, right? No, they got divorced. So that night they sleep in the car and they don't have sex. But the next night is the first night that they have sex on that trip. And then after that, they stay married for like three months. They get married and then she has this job in San Francisco. So, and a place to stay. So they stay together. And they, for three months. But this whole time, he's still writing to H and, like... And, like, he doesn't love her. But they're... Well, yeah, he doesn't love her. Wait, are they still filming? No. This is, like, the epilogue, basically, but it's part of the documentary. And, uh, yeah, so he's, like, constantly changing his mind. He's, like, very... He's, like, handsome, definitely. And she says that, like, 
part of one in one part of the document or the video it's hard for to describe what it is but in one part she says if he wasn't so handsome i would have an easier time dropping him mm-hmm. basically and he says there's parts of her that I like, like he doesn't like her nose or her lips, but he thinks that she's beautiful, but he doesn't want her. God. And then so he says, rough. like, he's pretty lame. Like, he's nothing that's very special about him. He's, like, tortured and full of self-doubt. But he says something that I feel very personally. He says something to the effect of, I never understood why people got upset about the things that I do because I feel like I'm never really there. Interesting. Same, ma'am. Like, I feel that, too. That's so interesting. But, uh, yeah, so so she says that she, like, made this video with him just because she wanted to spend time with him, and that's what he wanted to do was make movies. And then at the end of this trip she they start editing the video and then she realizes that she really does something have something there so instead of coming at it with a plan Mm -hmm. like i'm out to make a like an art project these are my parameters she kind of like just did whatever to get this guy's attention and then ended up having a piece of art at the end of it so yeah that's pretty interesting too i recommend it it was like a good little I fell in love with her. She's, like, so... They, like, go to this racist bar and, like, all of these, like, back town southern men are, like, talking to her and she's charming them and, like, in, with her heavy French accent and it's, like, it's just funny. That's, that's good. And she's, like, we have to get out of here. Like, in her narration, like, she doesn't say this to the guys, but she's, like, the old racist, like, we have to get out of here. <laughs> you know, like, her... I just love her accent. And she's so funny but watch it yeah it's a good one i recommend it so yeah she's just doing anything she's like living her life and turning it into art it's aspirational so that was 1992 92 how old is she at that point she's born 53 she's 39 Whoa. Yeah, she's older. Yeah. Yeah. And she says uh, also in the video that her mother was married and divorced three times, and that was the first time that she got married. She was almost 40. So she had this, like, real desire to be loved and to be married. Yeah. And so that was part of it, is, like, why she wanted this, and if she got it, would she feel differently? And she said that she did, like, her wedding. Like, after this, like, drive-up wedding, she felt differently about this man. Even though they spent this whole trip, like, fighting and not talking and, like, having this weird distance between them. And then this, like, weird archaic symbol changed Mm -hmm. something for a very small, very short amount of time. But it did change something. Yeah. So. 1998. Yeah. So, the birthday ceremony. So, Call would throw herself a dinner party Every year, she would throw herself a party, which is also fun. This is a huge chunk of time, too. So she would throw herself a dinner party every year from 1980 to... Well, no, I guess it's... I mean, that's a long time. It's a long time, yeah. So she would throw herself a party from 1980 to 1993. Mm -hmm. On her 40th birthday is when they stopped. So the number of friends and family invited to this party would match the number of years in her age. Mm -hmm. And every year, she would ask one guest to invite a mystery person that she didn't know. That's so crazy. Like a stranger. And one of these strangers wrote a book about her and about his experience. So... The mystery guest. The mystery guest, an account. 
So George Boyer. Bourgier, a Frenchman. In a like very small memoir that I have not read, but that I do want to read. I, it seems like it would be very interesting. Yeah, he like is it? He's called up. It seems like in the middle of the night, but probably it wasn't. He he's called up by an ex who left him without word four years earlier. So she just dumped him and didn't say a word about it. And then four years later, she calls him up and invites him to this party. And this party is Sophie Call's birthday party. And then he <laughs> like he writes about how it was like an absolute failure, and he was super embarrassed about it. But really, mm-hmm. why? Because he went there looking for answers for why she broke up with him, and then he didn't. Like get the answer that he wanted. So crazy. I want but to then they book. start. He and Kyle have like an intimate relationship. We'll get into that later. But wow, yeah. So, but that's like a whole different artwork based on this. But the one that we're talking about is that she would compile all of the gifts that she got from these parties from, and she would never open them or use them and she saved them in boxes and then eventually they were displayed in 1998 a viewing of all of these artworks that were displayed in medicine like medical cabinets so like mm-hmm. see-through cabinets um of all of these presents that she was got that she hey, gotten. Side note: hmm. stories. I mean, true stories is also displayed at the same time at the Tate. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Look, that's it. This is true story. Oh. Oh shit. Yeah. This. These are her true stories. Oh yeah, in the metal medicine cabinet. Yeah. And we can we'll post these photos too. Yeah. This is a good. This would be a good reference. And she said that it was a a way to remind herself that she was loved, that she was feeling really insecure, and so that she could point to these objects and say that people loved her, which is also very relatable. It's so sad. It sounds like she has, like, some crazy daddy issues. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, and then we were talking about this before, too, is that, like, her dad was a doctor, and these are, like, medical cabinets that they're displayed in. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't we all have issues of some sort? We all want to be loved, especially the artists. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my work is about, like, how much I want to be wanted. Yeah. And she's funny. Like, when you listen to her talk, she's 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 hilarious. She's very quirky. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, like, charismatic. Super personable. mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, not what you would expect, you know? Right. I don't know why I would, like, expect her to be more of, like, a... Like, cold? Yeah. Like, very closed off. Right. Maybe, like, not as talkative as she is. Yeah. I'm, like... You're itchy. I'm itchy and I'm like tied in here. <laughs> the dog is like sitting on and I'm top like of you. Trapped. I'm like wrapped in all so kinds you, of. You brought things. the blanket. Down. I know. So cozy. I feel like I'm like cozying up to a fire. <laughs> Honestly, with like the candle, the burning passion of the, the art. The blanket. And so the next one is part of this these works that she made about her failures in love, mm-hmm. um, which includes the one we already talked about, the No Sex Last Night. So this one is called, like, Exquisite Pain, Dolor, Esquisse. Esquisse. That's how you say it in French, I guess. I don't <laughs> I'm not, I don't see French. I, <laughs> I can only do one Esquisse. accent, and it's Valley Girl, and you're listening to it right now. And this is it. And this is it. <laughs> uh, so she... 
she traveled alone for three months, starting in Paris and, like, going through Japan and, like, all these really beautiful places. And she was to set her... She was set to meet her lover, boyfriend, whatever, in New Delhi, but he didn't show up. And again. He, again. See, this is, like, I relate, girl. Men yeah. were always letting me down. Dirty. Oh, damn it. Things with penises fucking oh, suck. Weird. I found a good one. Luckily. Luckily. And he's still here. So he's, good. yeah, somewhere. And, but anyway, so she doesn't show up. He sends her a fucking telegram. Rude. <laughs> and then he says he's injured, but then she finds out that it was like a small, minor injury to his fucking finger and that he's seeing someone else. So she, she took this extremely hard and some would say overly dramatic reaction to this like heartbreak but whatever heartbreak is heartbreak so yeah right teach their own like really heartbroken and sad um and then she was she had to continue this trip and even though it was really beautiful she kind of couldn't get over it and she took it really poorly and so whenever when she got back home whenever people would ask her about this great trip that she took the only thing that she could speak about was this the unfortunate ending so she decided to tell the story over and over again more than 60 times to kind of dull the pain um, through this like very systemic and cold and detached way and then she asked people to tell her the worst story of their life and that would make her feel better because most stories are a lot sadder than this and in the lecture I was listening to she said that like looking back this doesn't seem that bad like she feels like she was blowing it out of proportion but like heartbreak at the time always feels right it's like such a common thing you know right you're heartbroken you blow it out of proportion she happens to be an artist so it's like much more (laughs) dramatic right her heartbreak is like she gets to make a huge art piece right. about it. But so the initial display of the piece was sort of aided, collaborated with her friend, Frank Gehry. Who is a very prominent, well, who was a very prominent um, architect and architect, designer. Architect yeah. and designer. And they were, he did the phone booth. He made, he designed the phone booth for her and they were friends. And yeah, so they worked together frequently. And he always sent her flowers mm-hmm. to her openings. Um, and he, the very last piece we're going to talk to, he sent flowers to that as well. Um, but... So he built this sort of like labyrinth mm-hmm. display. It's like rotating and it's like spiraling. And so the visual works and the texture and the narratives were embroidered. So her story was on this gray on gray and the stories other people told her were embroidered on, on gray on white. So theirs was easier to read and easier to see. And then she also showed one picture each day of her trip leading up to her heartbreak. Right. And then she had numbers above them to count down to, like, the sort of... It's like a bomb detonation, like, counting down her her days of happiness until the last day where she reached to, like, peak unhappiness. Um, sort of the site of the pain. And so she's juxtaposing other people's pain and narrative as these diptychs and then trying to... So she, I think she's kind of making fun of herself. Like, these yeah, people like, are telling right. terrible stories, and right. she's like, this dude 
broke up with me. Right, right. And I think later on she realizes how dramatic she was, but as a result, <laughs> but as a result, we got like kind of an amazing insight between, you know, her and different women in terms of like the conversation of heartbreak. And stuff. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's it's I don't know. Her breakup is universal. Like yeah, right. everyone has had their heart broken mm-hmm. or felt really sad when somebody hurt their feelings or right. broke off a relationship. So the man was angry, but he never, he wasn't named in the exhibit, but then he wrote an article about how much it affected him so that people knew who it was. So he, like, found a way to profit off of this how exposure. When he's yeah. like, I'm so mad <laughs> I, you don't know who I am, so I'm going to make sure you know who I am. Like, what a douche. Yeah, what a classic, like, thing to do. <laughs> what a classic male yeah, yeah. piece of nonsense. I'm curious to read that article. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um... She, okay, so then we'll talk about the last of the three of these failure in love mm-hmm. pieces. This is probably my, one of my favorite works Which of is hers. very interesting. There's a huge gap. So, um, Exquisite Pain was 2003. Take Care of Yourself, which is the next one we're talking about, is 2007. I mean, she was still working during yeah. that time, but, um... But it's like, this is the third of the series. Right, yeah. So it's interesting. She took a few years to get over that. Yeah. (laughs) This, like, guy standing her up. Plus, she was dating this guy the whole time, so... Oh, yeah, okay, so the guy who this is based on, the guy who broke up with her in this, is George Boyer, the guy who wrote the mystery guest in account, um, where he was the mystery guest invited to her birthday party, so he's the guy who broke up with her um, during this. So it was originally displayed at the Venice Biennale. Um, She received a breakup letter. The work is the title of the last line of the email. He sent her to break up with her. It's called Take Care of Yourself. She decides to ask 107 women to answer her professionally. So they were friends, acquaintances, recommended women of all ages and all professions. So she asked them to answer and analyze the way they would if it was brought to them professionally. So like a dancer interpreted as a dance, an actor acted out a scene, a, a teacher... Um, went through and typed off all the grammatical errors and crossword puzzle, a secret service person made a code from the letter. It's just like all these really, like a broad range of reactions to this letter. Um, And she was kind of trying to get a perspective um, through this difficult emotional situation. She spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, asked a lot of women to yeah. read this letter. I Which mean, it's I think kind of, is awesome. She's dramatic and she I knows know, it and she doesn't I give a love shit. It. I love it. She asked 107 women <sighs> to respond to a breakup letter that someone wrote to her. It's it's fucking phenomenal. I, I love, love it. it. It's probably it's my so favorite genius. piece of hers. Yeah. It's like, so fucking cool. I really cool. want to read some of these. I mean, yeah, The I love that the teacher went through the grammatical errors. Yes, that's, like, so perfect. And, um... She so normally she does the text for the work. Like she doesn't always necessarily take the photographs for her pieces, but this time she didn't write any of the text. She didn't write the breakup letter. She didn't interpret it 
at all. She just took photographs of the women. So she took photographs of them upon their first interaction with it. So it's a lot of, like, women with their head down, um, looking at this letter. And so she... It was different. It was a different approach for her because I think photographs were kind of secondary to telling a narrative. Um, And so it was a different way for her to approach this. Um, But I... So Georgie, Georges, or however you say it in French, um, he wasn't super comfortable with it, but he had done the same thing when he wrote the book about Call. So I think he, like, gave her his blessing and they're still friends, so... Nice. Yeah, but I, I... Oh, the one who broke up with her, right? This is, yeah, the guy who wrote the book about her and then all, the breakup letter guy. But I... It's just so fun. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't seem... If it was someone else, it would. I think it would seem vengeful and yeah. hate-filled. And yeah. I don't think that's it, though. I think this is how she approaches the world, is, like... And it's also, personal. like, interesting, too. Like, I think I'm more curious as to, like, what some of these women say, mm-hmm. you know? Like, and it's so personal what they say, like, the teacher and the grammatical errors. Like, that's so, that makes so much yeah. sense. It's genius. Right. And it's, like, I'm curious to see what what different women would say. It's another level. Yeah. 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 That's the beauty of her work is that she takes this really simple, straightforward Mm -hmm. seeming thing and she treats it higher. Yeah, yeah. She takes it to the next level. Mm -hmm. Um, And like she shares it with us. Right, yeah. We get to see. Yeah, and it's so intimate. Like we get to, you know, participate in something hurtful in her life. And (laughs) it's like, we don't even know you, but we're going to respond. That's why I think, I mean, we were talking about how it would seem like this kind of art that she makes is that she's cold and distant, but she's yeah. so fun and she's yeah. funny mm-hmm. and like warm and yeah, yeah. welcoming. And clever. Charming. Yeah. Yeah. Super mm-hmm. charming. Super yeah. charming. She's the sh- I'm in love with her. Yeah. Basically. She's incredible. <laughs> super incredible. The end. But just look her up. Everyone's in love with her. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you could not, except for these dudes. I don't know. I tried to find some, information about what she's doing now yeah like, she's doing know. a lot of cat stuff right because yeah cat, she she has a cat <laughs> and it, it passed away and she was really close to this cat and i, I mean, think it's like really dramatically affected her i mean really all her me. projects are about this cat i fucking love that i mean it's still so clever i'm really close to my dumbass dog yeah i mean if bartle died like that's it for i don't want to think about it's it i really like, don't dogs all day I I try to like draw him all the time, but he moves around so much. He's like a bug. Like You're he never stops photo fucking moving. He also, you bring up the camera like on your phone to take a picture of him, and he knows and he turns away. Really? It happened this morning. He was like laying in front of the. You're gonna the have to take a photo of him sleeping. Door. I do, but it's boring because he has beautiful <laughs> eyes. But he like was sitting in front of the door, and the sun was shining, and I like crawled up and tried to take a picture, and he like got up all excited, like I was gonna play with him, like bitch. Sit down i just want you to to be cute (laughs) work we're gonna talk about Uh uh-huh it's sort of recent it's no it's 2017 um and it is a tribute to her mother isn't it Yeah, yeah yeah rachel monique um it has a few names but um it's a book and it was also an installation um originally shown in tokyo um in the in this new art space that was nine thousand square feet 
they learned that she had three months to live, and so they had a lot of time to prepare, and Kal wanted to capture these last moments in her life, so she, and they didn't really know when it, when she was going to die, of course, and so she set up cameras in, in Monique's room to capture the last days of her life, and hopefully sort of captured death, which is really dark, but she comes at it pretty lighthearted, of course. Um, Naturally. (laughs) And so she says that her mom felt um, sort of comforted by the camera. She felt that Kal was with her even when she couldn't, like, because she spent the three months, last three months of her life with her mom, but she couldn't be there every single second, so... Um, she slept on the floor of her mom's room. They treated these last three, month, three months as a party. There were people over every day, and um, they would bring food, kind of like sh- sitting Shiva, but right. before the death instead right. of after. So there were a lot of people around, and there were, so she wanted to capture like her last words, her smiles, her breath. At the end of this, once her mom had died, she had hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage that she edited down to 11 minutes, which were the 11 minutes that she couldn't quite figure out where her last breath was. Like, she... So that's part of it, is, like, her failure to capture death, which is what she wanted to do. So she couldn't pinpoint these exact moment that she stopped breathing. So interesting. Right. And so she said that, like, it seems really dark. Like, I... We're both pretty close with our mothers. Like, I don't know that I would be able to do this. Like, I would be, like, a heartbroken mess. Right. It's it's different. And she said that she couldn't watch the video after it was done. Like, when it was up in Tokyo, she couldn't watch it. Like, it was too close. Like, too personal. But when she was editing editing editing, <laughs> editing, editing, editing it. the footage she came at it like a project so yeah. it didn't feel as personal but when it was done she said she never watched it again um but she said that her mom would really because she wrote the whole book about her life um and she said that her mom would really love it because she loved people talking about her and right. she always said that her children weren't paying enough attention to her so um her last Monique Sindler's last words were don't worry um and she died peacefully so it's so strange I'm watching the video right now and have you seen it yeah and sh- this is literally like is she behind the camera it's just stationary. Okay. Is she in the room? I don't know that she... She it didn't she didn't make it clear in the lecture that I... Sorry, the dog breathed very <laughs> deeply. He's asleep. Uh. Um, I don't know. This is super different than what she normally does. Yeah. Normally, she either, she's like a very active participant. Yeah, the, right, right, right. This is like super personal, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I... She did a few things for this installation, especially she, her mom wanted to take a trip to the North Pole, but then she got sick and she couldn't do it. So she buried um, a bunch of her grandfather's rings and her um, necklace of her mother's in an iceberg at the North Pole and like video documented that too. Um, and then she took a photo of her mother laying in her grave, like in her coffin, surrounded by objects that people had brought to her. So like cookies and wine and liquor and photos yeah it's like it seemed like her mom was a really lively person um and the the thing that I love like I really like this piece because I think motherhood is something 
that we can all relate to. Like, even if we don't, we aren't mothers, we all have mothers. And it's, yeah, it's a complex relationship. And her gravestone, the inscription on Monique Sindler's gravestone is... I'm getting bored already. What? I love it. I love that. I want that to be my gravestone inscription. I'm getting bored already. That's crazy. It's fucking great. Um, And she also, she took photos um, sort of way, 20 years, 30 years before this when she came back to Paris, I think, um, of like gravestones and how strange she thought it was that some gravestones just had things like mother or brother or son on right. them and how like you can whittle someone's really like whole life down to one relationship that yeah. they had yeah so i think she was one trying to capture that by like monique sindler was sophie call's mother like this whole exhibit is about her being her mother but it's also like showing her whole life and this really complex person and relationship that they had right so i think it's kind of beautiful this is so crazy i it's just pretty keep crazy. thinking about like my mom you know like dude i don't think it could have like my mom's death playing over and over again at a museum like right. you know at an exhibit yeah I, I think she's so... She has a detachment from yeah. reality. Yeah, she definitely does. She doesn't approach things, like... Which I can kind of relate to sometimes. <laughs> but, like, she doesn't... She obviously has a hard time putting, like, sentimental value into things. Right. She's kind of, like, cavalier about... She like seems emotions. very yeah aloof yeah mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. It just seems like maybe she like feels like these things are inevitable and yeah. she kind of just sits back, and which lets I think it is happen. Why? Do you think maybe for the purpose of her art. Yeah, I think that's why that makes yeah. for such great art. Yeah. Is I couldn't be that detached from things right. that are happening or in that my committed life. to your right. craft, you know, yeah. or or to your form of expression, like. This is commitment right here. Yeah, next level. Like, all the way down to her mother's death, you know? Like, still using these moments as, like, her form of expression. Yeah. So public. (laughs) It's, like, very public. Yeah. But I think, like, it was also... I don't, like, my mom... My mom would hate this, but I think her mom... Love would love this, and yeah. I think that was also something that I think she factored in is that like yeah. her mom loved attention, mm-hmm. so she is in her death and living with it. her life. Yeah. yeah, she's she's given all the attention yeah. in the world, which her, makes sense. I right. guess it's very personal. It has a lot to do with like the individuals like who are a part of this, and uh, yeah, if the mother was if she she maybe she's like really doing this as a tribute. Like, yeah, for real. So, yeah, I think that's it. I, I think, think that's, that's it. That's, that's Sophie Call. That's Sophie Call. She's the shit. I'm in love with her. I know. You, she was my favorite, but I think she's now your favorite. Especially, like, it's been a while since I finished researching, but when I was researching her, I felt like she, like, I found myself thinking about her in my regular yeah. everyday life and, like, how would Sophie come at this, like, situation? It just, yeah. like, she felt like she was with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time, but, um. That was just me. no. She has a pretty big fan base too. Like she's I mean, kind of it like makes sense. she has like a really large like cult following. <laughs> like you know, she People does seem like look the, up to her. If anyone deserves sure. a cult following, it's Sophie. Oh 
Oh, yeah. I uh, or oh, just, like, mainstream exposure. Right, right. I think it's her writings that I'm the most fan of. Like, her yeah. her blurbs under her photos. That's a like, big part of her Yeah, work. I think that, especially because, like, okay, I think... Um, to read it in English would probably be very different than to read it in French. Mm-hmm. Like, I obviously, like, anything written in your own language is going to be more profound than mm-hmm. the translated version. Yeah. But even the translated versions of these works, sometimes I'm, like, blown away by her writing. Yeah. And it's her writing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not... Don't you put feel a little anywhere. different? Yeah, I do. About kinda. her? Like, reading it, I kind of felt bored at some point. <laughs> like, you I know? was enthralled. Like, I, the whole time, I was like, oh my god, what more? Like, I want to absorb... Which is funny, because you originally were drawn to... Anna Mendieta. Oh, yeah. But now I like her way more than Sophie. I mean, I still, I just didn't really know much about Sophie Kyle before we started this whole thing. When we're like, okay, this is going to be our second one. Like, and I started reading about her and Mm -hmm. like watched the whole video. I was like, holy shit. How have I not? Like, I I love her work and I think that she's kind of like a pioneer for, for like, performance conceptual art like that's Mm -hmm. I think she's mastered something that not many people are able to master yeah so I think she's a genius like (laughs) and I think she's so committed to her art Mm -hmm. and to her craft and that's insane like she's literally lived this like hasn't taken a you know a break or a breather and her life is so interesting yeah but interesting and and also mundane yeah like her life is just like everyone else's life and I think she makes that clear yeah it's like if we were dramatic about everything that that happened in our lives I am dramatic about we do like if if we like did a whole thing about every ex that broke up with us right I do kind of I would have a couple good series is she my favorite I don't know. <gasps> Has it changed? I think so. I Weird. think so. I can't say that I have a famous favorite artist. There's I mean, just too I many. Can't either. Okay, so our social media handles, you can follow us at Instagram, mm-hmm. at The Art Broadcast. You can follow us on Tumblr. At um, The Art Broadcast. We don't have a Twitter. We don't have a Tumblr. Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> this has been The Art Broadcast. Um, we've been, it's been great. Thanks for all the listeners. Are we getting a lot? I don't know. I think like 10 people listen to it. It's fine. Thank you for the five people (laughs) that have listened to this podcast. It's fine. Who cares? If you've learned something, that's great. We had a fun time making it, so. (laughs) Okay, great. Goodbye. I'll see you later.